How you guys doing out there? Good? Welcome to the 12th of January. Hey, we're in a message series that we started last week uh, called Chasing Carrots. It's about this endless pursuit of more. We talked about uh, fame last week, a lot of stuff on social media we talked about. Today we're talking about something that I think probably uh, impacts most of us. Um, I know it certainly impacts me. We're talking about chasing money and things and material stuff from this world. So if, uh, if I could get you to kind of join with me in sort of a, a little survey, kind of get the you know, audience response, I'd love it if you'd do that with me. How many of you would say, with a show of hands, that if it happened, you would not mind waking up tomorrow and finding out that you're rich? How many people would not object vociferously to that? Okay, okay, good. Wouldn't mind if that happened. How, how many of you would say that you actually know someone who is rich? Right? Yep, some of you know them. Have you ever looked at someone who is rich and thought to yourself, if I were rich like they are rich, I think I'd be better at being rich than they are. I'd handle being rich better. Anybody? anybody? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's me. Right? And this is a little harder question. How many of you think that you are really rich? Not a lot of hands going up. So let me just summarize. Most of you said that you're not really rich, but that you wouldn't mind if it were to happen that you were to be rich. And if that's where I find myself, that's where you find yourself, that's where we find ourselves, then um, we're going to have the tendency, I think, just because we're people, to pursue, long for more money and stuff. It's going to be natural reaction. You know, I did some digging into research on this uh, over the last few weeks. I found an article with the results of a survey on what people would, would give up for $5 million, what they would give up for $5 million. And according to this survey, 54% of the people surveyed said they would be willing to listen only to country music for the rest of their lives, right? Now, that's fascinating because it drove me back to this Far Side cartoon, my favorite, my favorite cartoonist, Gary Larson, that depicted hell being only banjo music, right? <laughs> so, okay, this one shocked me a little bit. 50% of the people said that for $5 million, they would, be allow, they would be willing to allow one random person somewhere on earth to die. <laughs> Isn't that cool? 42% um, of the people said that they would, for $5 million, be willing to live their entire lives without teeth. Without teeth. By the way, in case you're wondering, this is Cameron Diaz without teeth, right? So, <laughs> this last one was a little hard for me to get my mind around. 24%, almost a quarter of the people, said they would be willing to live, for $5 million, they would be willing to live 20 consecutive years in total isolation from all human contact. <laughs> Weird, right? Right. Gallup did another poll to determine what people thought that rich was. And in other words, at what point would you kind of conclude that you are actually rich? When do you have enough stuff, have enough money, whatever, for you to say, okay, I finally arrived, I'm rich. What was interesting is that the responses varied upon where somebody happened to be financially. For example, 
Those who made around $30,000 a year who were surveyed, the average response from them of what it would take for them to feel rich was $74,000 a year. In other words, if they just doubled their income slightly more, uh, they would feel that they had arrived, that they would have everything they ever needed for the rest of their lives. Now, some of you might make $74,000 a year, and you're probably going to tell that person, I got, I, got some, I got some sad news for you. It doesn't feel very rich to me, right? For those who made $50,000 a year in the survey, it, it said for them, it would take about $100,000 a year for them to feel rich. And some of you sitting out there, maybe close to making 100000 with a mortgage, with car payments, with kids in college, living in the D.C. area, you'd probably say, that's, that's not feeling all that rich to me. Gallup also surveyed people making well into the six figures, 200000 300000 500000 uh, and the average response from those characters was that it would take about $5 million for them to feel that they were rich. So if you're the, the poor schmuck who's only got $2 million or $3 million, you, you just haven't arrived yet. You need five, right? So, now, so for those of us who don't feel rich, but who wouldn't mind waking up to find that we are rich, and maybe are a little bit caught up in the pursuit of money and stuff, Here's, here's, what we, here's what we learn. What rich is seems to be a constantly moving target. And if you've been around for a while, you kind of know this, right? Early on in my life, in my 20s, when I first moved out to D.C., I remember saying out loud to my wife, Jackie, if we can just get one day, if we can just get to a certain point where we make this much a year, I'm going to feel that that's going to be enough for us forever. That's going to be enough. By the way, that amount that I set in 1976 was $25,000 a year. <laughs> because when I was hired by the CIA, I made $17,000. So, guess what happened? Within five years, I had crossed that threshold. And what do you think happened? I set a new threshold, right? And the line moved. And I crossed that threshold, and then I had to set another one because that, that didn't do it either. What do you need to feel rich? Kind of what I've learned, probably you've learned. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I know this. It's always just a little more. <laughs> just a little more. This is why I think Jesus spent so much time, and he spent a ton of time, talking about the right perspective on money and stuff. In fact, in Luke's gospel, here's what Jesus said. He's talking to his followers. He says this, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, wanting more. Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So two warnings to start off. Anytime you see in Scripture two things at once, like Jesus says, verily, verily, what he's saying is, this is true, but it's really true, so you've got to pay special attention to this thing I'm about to tell you, because it's not just true, verily, it's verily, verily true, really important. So Jesus, this, Jesus starts off with two particular warnings. Watch out, be on guard. That's basically Hebrew for saying you've got to really pay attention to this. This is super important. Now, be on your guard. A guard against what? Against all kinds of greed. All kinds of just wanting more. And then Jesus tells us why. Because your life does not consist in just the abundance of stuff. Your life is not measured by the volume of your stuff or the size of your IRA or whatever. So yeah, we need to be on our guard because 
Everything in our culture, if you haven't figured this out yet, if you haven't noticed, and maybe you're not watching any TV, you're not watching any radio, you're not driving anywhere, you're blind, you don't see any billboards, you don't see any advertising. I mean, if you're, if you're that person, totally oblivious to what's going on around you, you live in a cocoon, right? That's not you because you had to drive here, you had to get here. You passed stuff that basically screams at you, you need this, and you need more incessantly in our culture. The dominant message from our culture is this. What you do not have is what you really need. I mean, to have and be fulfilled and happy and maybe rich. You've seen the, you've seen the commercials. Right? If you are not driving a Mercedes, you're not driving anything. You might as well walk because it doesn't count as a car. Whatever you're driving doesn't count as a car. You might as well crawl, right? You're better off doing that than trying to drive that silly thing you're driving that's not a Mercedes. What you don't have that's what you really need. You need this, and then you need more. And Jesus said, man, you gotta, you got to fight that message from that culture of yours off because your life is more than that money and stuff. And Jesus, in fact, Jesus uses a really powerful illustration about a very rich guy in, also in Luke's gospel. He said there was this fella, a rich guy, uh, who had this incredibly uh, bountiful harvest, a huge bumper crop. And he says to himself, well, what am I going to do? I got, I got all this grain. I got all this money coming in, all these crops. Oh, I know, I know what I'll do. I will tear everything down that I have, all the barns, and I will build bigger barns, and I'll store all these crops in those barns. And then I can take it easy for the rest of my life. I can retire. I can take life easy. I can throw parties. It'll just be a blast. Sounds like a great plan, right? But here's what God says to the rich guy. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus makes this comment. This is how it's going to be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, here's what fascinated me about this little story. God does not appear to be mad at this guy for being rich. Let me think about it. The guy was a farmer. He was an agrarian society, so he has this incredible parcel of land, and he's got this incredible bountiful harvest. But uh, who was it that made the farmer rich? Yeah, God did. God brought the rain. God brought the crops in. God made the guy rich. But God was not disappointed in the guy because he was rich, but because he was not rich towards God. Apparently, there's two different things going on there. He was rich in the things of this world, but not necessarily in the things that mattered most. So with that in mind, I've got basically some good news for us today and some bad news. I'm going to start with the good news because that's what I put first in the message. I'm not going to skip ahead, right? Here's the good news. The good news is you are actually rich. You are actually rich. Truth is, you're rich. If I ask you if you're rich, you said you weren't, but, but you are just don't really feel it, do you? Sitting here, do you feel rich? You don't really feel rich because you feel that sometimes you've got more bills than money. But when we get a little perspective, we recognize that around three billion or so people on this earth live every day on less than $2 a day. While some of us might have spent about five bucks today on coffee just getting to church. Yeah, based on how most people in the world live, you and I here in Northern Virginia are really quite 
wealthy. You can actually tell how rich you are by things that upset you, right? Like, like how, how mad do you get when your Amazon package takes three days to get to you instead of two, right? Or the fast food restaurant didn't give you quite enough dipping sauce for the nuggets that someone else actually prepared for you. Or there was a momentary blip when your Netflix didn't connect quickly enough to your Wi-Fi. Or you forgot your AirPods. So you have to, I mean, I know this is excruciating. I know it's excruciating. But you have to manually, somehow manage to get, get your phone up, up to your head. I, I mean, I know that's just, that's just awful, right? You can tell how rich you are by what bothers you. So step back and think about it for a second. Most of us can play practically any song that's ever been written on multiple devices. You can stream any movie, play any game. If you get hungry, you can drive your car from your house to get something to eat. You can drive your car past 15 or 20 other restaurants where you could get something to eat to go to your preferred place to get something to eat where someone else milks the cow, caught the fish, cuts the head off the chicken that makes your chicken salad. If you got someone else that does all of that, someone else who cooks your food, cleans up everything after you, prepares your plate, delivers it, puts a little garnish on it to make it look like it's healthy, and then you complain because it took seven minutes to get to you, you're in the top 10% of the richest people on planet Earth. That's how rich most of us are. Now, the good news is that you and I are really rich, globally speaking. Now, I know right now there are people in our midst, maybe, who face extreme financial situations, medical bills, divorce, single parents, and you're fighting to stay afloat. I'm not diminishing the reality of that world. But overall, most of the people I'm talking to this morning are actually doing far better than that, right? Comparatively speaking, globally speaking, we really are rich. If your house or place to live has electricity or gas heat, running water that you can actually drink as well as bathe in, have sewage control, insulation, if you've got health insurance, if you've got a TV, a computer, internet, cable, a phone, a primary care physician, access to an emergency room if you need it, medicine if you get sick, inoculations that make sure that you don't get sick, you're in the top 5% of the world's richest people. So perspective is everything, right? And perspective tells us that really for Christians, we ought to acknowledge like the guy with the big barns, that maybe God is the one who's actually blessed us. And if that's the case, then we got to recognize that we have a responsibility to maybe be good at being rich. And that means we got to be rich in a way that honors God. And if you believe that God has blessed you and made you, comparatively speaking, rich, then maybe you ought to say it out loud. What do you think? Just say it out loud. I'm rich. You want to say it? I'm rich. I didn't hear you. Maybe not everybody said that, right? Why do we feel a little uncomfortable saying that? Don't you feel uncomfortable saying that? You, didn't, you did, didn't you? I did. Why do you think you might be a little embarrassed to say that? Why do you think you might be a little timid? Why do you think you might be a little even apologetic, right? I love what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He says this, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in the toil, this is a gift from God. When God gives some wealth, someone wealth, do you hear that? Who gives wealth? God does. Oh, you might say, well, 
Not me, surely. I'm, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Well, except that God made you first, right? You've got gifts. You've got talent he wove into your frame. You've had opportunities that God gave you. You were born in a place where you've got more opportunities than most people have in the globe. And God was the one behind it. If you got wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, God, Solomon says, who's considered the wisest person that ever lived, it's a gift from God. So if for a moment you feel ashamed, if you feel uh, apologetic, if you feel embarrassed, you got to ask yourself this, in what other area of my life am I blessed and am embarrassed by the fact? I mean, think about it. If somebody says, man, you, you, you seem to have a great marriage. Do you respond, well, I might, but I feel bad about it. I feel really horrible about that. <laughs> no, no you, you don't know it. You're right. And thanks, yeah, I've got a great wife, got a great husband, got a great family, got a great kids. I'm blessed. God's given me this incredible family. I was at the uh, giant pharmacy a while back uh, doing what you do at the giant pharmacy. You wait for the prescription to be filled because no matter how many days in advance you send it, they never get to it until you walk in and say, I'm ready to pick it up. And they go, oh, we'll fill that for you. So it'll be 15 minutes. Okay, so I'm sitting there. And uh, a black gal about my age comes in and sits down doing the same thing I'm doing, waiting for the prescription to be filled. We're there about five minutes. And she turns to me and she says, sir, you have great hair. I don't think about my hair at all. It used to be nice and brown. Now it's this, right? So, but what, I didn't say, I'm sorry that you think I've, no, I just said, thanks for saying that. I know I should be bald. But God hasn't seen fit to take it all away yet. So, you know, we don't apologize for blessings, right, in any other area of our lives except for this area of wealth or riches. We tend to do that. Uh, but if your perspective is that the blessings of riches come from God, they emanate from God, then we don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed or apologetic. Yeah, yeah, okay. Comparatively speaking, globally speaking, I'm rich. God's blessed us. That's the good news. But there's also some bad news, and it's this. The bad news is this, you're rich. <laughs> because being rich puts us at an incredible spiritual disadvantage. In fact, Jesus had a very telling conversation about a, uh, with a rich and powerful person, right? And uh, this guy's stuff and this guy's money was so important to him that it actually hindered him, prevented him from actually becoming a follower of Christ. And this is what Jesus said to this powerful young guy. He looks at him and says this, <laughs> kind of probably shaking his head, kind of probably sad, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to navigate through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Good news is you're rich, you're blessed. Bad news is you're rich. It's a tremendous spiritual advantage. Why? Because you, you already have a roof over your head, right? You've got food in your pantry. You can buy whatever you need. You can also buy stuff you don't need but that you want. And you've probably never in your life had the blessing of praying, God, please give me today my daily bread because if you do not, I will not eat. Why? Because you've already got a pantry. You've already got a fridge. You've already got a freezer full of food, right? We've lost the ability to sense and appreciate that God's actually providing for us every single day. And guess what? With that pantry full of food, that refrigerator full of food, and that freezer full of food, what do we do? We open up those doors. We look at that 
You know what we say? Nothing to eat. Nothing to eat in here. Nothing to eat that you want. You just got a full freezer full of stuff. Okay, anyway. Having rich, being rich is also a disadvantage because we are distracted, like people who text and drive. Right? We've got rich people options, rich people opportunities. So much so that we exhaust ourselves taking advantage of all the options and opportunities. So much so that we're often missing out on what matters most. And if you don't believe me, you need to take a trip to the third world, a developing nation. If you haven't done that, I urge you to do it. Uh, here's what you're going to do. You're, you're, you're going to be absolutely shocked when you get off the airplane on day one. Your stomach will be turned when you see the extreme poverty. I mean, you're not going to believe what you see and the conditions that people live in. Yeah, you're going to go home in a week. But you know they're going to live the rest of their lives in that squalor. And you're going to feel sorrow and compassion for them. Uh, by day three or four, what you're going to find is that, that you begin to see that they've got some things you don't have. They've got time, quality time with people, family. They've got relationships. They often, if they're Christians, have an incredible intimacy and depth with their relationship with God. What they don't have that you and I have is all the stress and anxiety and burden of managing all the crap <laughs> that we've got. Their stress, food, water, shelter. On day five or so, you might find a small part of yourself being jealous at their simplicity of life of their intimacy with one another, their love for one another, their appreciation for the community they live in, and their adoration of God if you're sitting in a Christian community. We are at a disadvantage so much because of the stuff that we have. Another reason it's a disadvantage to be rich is this biblical truth out of Luke chapter 12, where it says this, to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, it's great if you're rich because you can truly enjoy what God's given you. you if he's blessed you with it, you're, you're able to enjoy it. It's honors, honoring to God if you actually do that. But God also expects more from us. Because we're rich, we have a greater responsibility. But all the time, every moment of every single day, our culture is screaming at us, what you don't have is what you really need. A newer phone better TV, brand new purse, the shoes, the watch, the sunglasses, the wallet, the jacket, the backpack, the speakers, the car, flooring, the furniture, the countertops, the accessories, the artwork, and don't get me started on vacations. Because what you don't have, what you haven't experienced, is what you really need. That's why Jesus said, man, watch out. Be on your guard. Because a person's life, what really matters in the end does not consist in the abundance of stuff and money. And here's what I know about me and you. We kind of know this is true in our heads, don't we? But the problem is that our lifestyles don't often reflect the truth that we know in our heads because it hasn't found its way into our hearts yet. And if you're truly, really, really honest, you might be a person saying, look, look I, I, I pretty much am spending all of what I make on me some of you might actually say, I actually think I'm spending more than I make on me because <laughs> it's easy to buy into the lie that stuff out there, more stuff out there, 
really matters. If I can just get that, I'll be happy, right? The very way that most Christians live in our culture says about us that what we really believe is that more is where we're going to find happiness. Whenever we believe that lie, and it comes at us all the time, we just need to get it that we're under the curse of money and stuff. But you know what? More money isn't going to help your kids stay off drugs, right? In fact, more money might actually entice them into it. More stuff is not going to heal somebody who's got cancer. More stuff is not going to make your depression go away. More stuff isn't going to save your marriage. And when we trust in money and stuff, we are trusting in the temporary, in what the Bible describes as fleeting, what can disappear. And when that happens, it leads us to insecurity. What we don't need is more of what is temporary. What we need is more of what is eternal. What we need is more of Jesus. I don't want to personally be under the curse of money. I find myself there sometimes. I don't want to be under the power of something in this world. I want to be under the power of the one who has conquered all of the ills of this world. And I want to live a life that honors him. And if I do that, somehow I'm going to end up being rich towards God. And that's why I love what Paul tells Timothy. It's a passage we kind of meandered into a little bit last fall as we started going through the book of James. Paul is mentoring this young pastor, his protege, Timothy, whom he led to the Lord. He's telling him that he needs to talk to the rich people in his congregation. And just remember, the rich people are you and me, right? So don't hear Paul's words to Timothy as something for somebody else, but for us. Hear it as God's words to you and me. Paul tells Timothy this. Command those in your congregation who are rich in this present world, that's pretty much us, not to be arrogant, not to think that they're all that just because they've got stuff, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, if you're rich, don't be arrogant. Remember how you got it. Remember who provided it. Remember who gave it to you. Don't start trusting in it because it can vanish like that. God gives it to you. God blesses. He's a great God. He loves to bless his kids. When you are faithful, what he gives you, he tends to bless you. Not just talking about blessing you with more money, but with more life. Might be some more money, but it will definitely be more life. Some of you, I know, you have been faithful. You've taken what God's given you. You've stewarded it. You've maximized it. You've multiplied it. Don't feel guilty, but do feel responsible. God's blessed you, and it's not all for you. You've got every right to enjoy it, every right to live in a nice house, drive a nice car, spend money on your family, but it's not all for us, right? To whom much is given, pretty much most of us, much is required. And that's why God's word to its rich people is this. Paul, again, counseling Timothy out of 1 Timothy 6. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up Treasure for themselves in the coming age. So we're talking about being rich towards God, right? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Be generous, willing to share, be rich in good deeds so you can take hold of life that really is life. Andy Stanley, one of my favorite pastors and teachers, taught on this theme a few years ago and he said something in a message I listened to that sort of stuck with me and uh, I wrote it down so I'm gonna share it with you. Uh, it, it really goes along with what Paul is telling Timothy in this passage. Here's what Andy Stanley said. God has blessed me with more than I need. I'm rich. 
but I will not trust in my riches, but in him who richly provides. Because I have more, I will give more and do more. Then I don't know about you, but I want to live like this. See, I know that temporary things in this world promise all kinds of stuff, but you know that I, I just don't find that they deliver all that well. And you kind of know it, right? I mean, think about Christmas is two years ago. I don't know what you got for Christmas, but you get it and it's a buzz, right? There's a buzz. It's, awful, it's awesome. But eventually the buzz kind of fades away. Then it goes in the closet. Then it goes in the garage. And a few years later, you get rid of it. See, in the Old Testament times, God directed his people, if they were going to be called his people, to tithe, to take 10% off the top of whatever you know, harvest they get, cattle that they get, money that they get. Not because God needs the money, but as a declaration to God that they know who it was that blessed them and gave them the resources. Funds went to the temple, right? Tabernacle, local church, right? Support the work of the church, welfare of the building staff, widows, orphans, and ministry to the broader community. There were, along the year, other things called free will offerings that were over and above the 10% for special projects. So just carry this forward, if you will. The 10% off the top in most churches would cover the mortgage, debt payments, upkeep of the building, the staff, administrative costs, money that sent to the denomination, right? But here at the Surge, we're, we're a little bit unique. I think we're the, we're the one blue rubber ducky, I think, right? We've got no debt, nor will we ever have, as long as I'm the pastor here. The property that we had over in McLean, we sold. Those funds are essentially invested, and they produce revenue that pays the rent for this theater, all the salaries, all the administrative stuff, legal stuff, everything else, insurance, that kind of stuff. Now, there's still some beyond that that allow us to get involved in ministry, but not nearly as much as we'd like. So we're just trusting God. If we do good teaching here to inspire you, get a hold of you, knowing in your minds that every dollar you give is going to go for ministry stuff, community needs, and not paying off mortgages. Now, along the path, we're going to have the opportunity to do what the Old Testament would have referred to as these free will offerings. That's just giving over and above the 10% for special projects, like the computer and stuff we just got for the NOVA Human Trafficking Initiative. Now, here's a question. Wasn't that fun? Wasn't that fun? Wasn't it, wasn't it fun? I mean, maybe you didn't participate. You don't know. You, you're, you're glad the church did something, but you weren't involved. But if you were involved, wasn't that fun? Wasn't it a blast? It's, that's why the Bible's only interested in not being a giver, but being a cheerful giver, because giving makes you cheerful. <laughs> giving does something awesome. It's supposed to be that way. Now, I, I got to tell you, I have never been comfortable yapping about money. But since we're doing it, I got to share to you that I'm a little bit like these guys on the screen. That is, as lead pastor, I have no idea what anybody who's ever come here gives except for me. And that is by design. I know that the other three elders are givers, including Yastin and Julie, who are doing it from San Antonio on their rotational assignment. But exactly how much any of them give, I do not know. I'm clueless. And I like it that way. Now, Greg Johnson, the chairman of our elder board and our treasurer, is the only fellow who really knows everything. And he tells the rest of us elders nothing, right? Other than macro numbers on a weekly basis on giving and data related to how we're doing, basically keeping to our budget. 
Of course, the other thing he does is he sends, at, usually at the end of January, a note to you guys uh, with the charitable contributions you made so you can write them off on your taxes for the IRS and the state you live in. So here's all I can say. Given the total giving that the church receives, knowing how churches work, I know that there are some of you who are stacking up riches towards God by your generosity. And I know there's probably some of you who are not yet confident enough in God to start being rich towards him. Again, I am not talking to anybody in particular here, okay? Because I got no clue what anybody gives. So all I'd suggest is this, that you and God talk this over. And then you do what God tells you to do, right? I was gonna say two things I've learned, but I've learned three things, right? One is, uh, I'm, there, one is that there's a Holy Spirit. Two, I am not the Holy Spirit. And three, Holy Spirit does a lot better job of being the Holy Spirit than Dwayne does. So you and God work it out. For many of you, it's going to be a process like it was for me. You develop faith taking steps by steps, piece at a time. Ask God to lead you to the next step, whatever that happens to be. Now, I just want to encourage you a little bit. I know that if you go to pastoral training in seminaries, they tell you never involve yourself in the message because you're just a knucklehead. But uh, I think it might be useful to share Jackie as my personal trek to the 10% thing, uh, just to show you that I get it, how hard it is to come to a decision to do this, right, through giving. So like my confession last week of selfishness, which is now on the internet for everybody to see for all time. So it's probably a stupid idea, uh, but I'm gonna share some stuff today as well um, that I'm probably gonna say, okay, maybe I wish I was went up online, but there it is. But here's the deal, I, I desperately want you to know that I've sat where many of you are sitting as I wrestled through this stuff myself. I, 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 I did not get saved and boom, become a generous person. It did not happen. I'll confess this. I bet I heard no fewer than 50 messages on giving and tithing and all that stuff early on in my Christian life. And you know what? I was amazingly successful in ignoring and rebuffing every one of them, right? Uh, nope. Can't do that. I won't do that. It won't work for us. The numbers just don't add up. Been there? Are you there? <laughs> yeah. I know what that's like. So I know this, this message may not move you because it didn't move me for a long time. But God might just use it to nudge you, might just use it to inch you. Or maybe you've ignored the 50 messages and you're ready for God to take you to a new, new place to lead you to a new level of trust altogether. Because God finally got, it's beginning to get breakthrough with us after years of being a Christian to lead us to, I'm just gonna mention two critical decisions that seemed financially to make absolutely no sense whatsoever, whatsoever at the time. But they ended up being two of the smartest decisions we ever made in our whole lives. Truthfully, I think Jackie would have been there far earlier, right? Um, but I fought it off and she was the wife who probably prayed incessantly for her husband to finally get his act together. So Jackie and I married five years, both working out here, working full time. Uh, we, know, we knew we wanted kids, but, but I made her promise and, and you, you will see just what a charmer I was, right? I made her promise that she would return to full-time work after any kids were born. Didn't force her to sign anything, 
But she agreed, and Jackie is nothing if not a woman of her word. So in the first five years, she and I were married, we essentially lived paycheck to paycheck. We didn't save a dime, ever. We had our first son, uh, our only son, Jeff, our first kid, and Jackie did a maternity leave for a few, a couple of months, went back to work as promised, and Jeff heads to daycare. I mean, we took him to daycare. He didn't have to get there on his own, okay? But not that bad. That was bad, but not that bad. But, but God did what he so enjoys doing, which is stirring the pot. We were at a good church with good teaching, I think, like the surge. Jackie's job was uh, slower in the summer months, and so she had the opportunity one in the summer to, to go part-time just for the summer. Our money flow was less, but offset partly by the fact that daycare didn't have to do the daycare. But during this period, we also discovered that the husband in the daycare center, which is located in a house, had thought it a good idea to offer Jeff a sip of his beer as a toddler. So that is a development that Jeff shared with us as he's rattling around telling us how his days were. So that's rattling around in our hearts too. But so at the end of the summer, Jackie's job says, okay, you gotta come back full time now. And we had a decision. And God led us to have her quit her job and be a full-time homemaker. And listen, do not hear this, that you're a bad parent if you have kids in daycare. <laughs> I'm not saying that. If you've got kids in daycare, fine. I'm just saying that God used that horrible experience with the beer drinking in the daycare to cause us to make a dramatic change. So she left the job. I'm going to tell you this. There was nobody more terrified on planet Earth than I was because I had no earthly idea how we would ever make ends meet. The very next week, I walk into my office and I'm handed a promotion. I had no idea it was coming. God was good. We felt it. Didn't make up all the money that we lost from Jackie's salary, but he responded to our little bitty act of faith with a, with a, with a, a, a response. And even though we were still making less money, because Jackie wasn't working, and I don't know how this happened, but we discovered that out of nowhere, we were able to start saving money for the first time ever in our marriage. I have no idea what happened. Maybe things didn't break. Maybe the repairs weren't needed. Maybe things just lasted longer. I don't know. Still a mystery to me. But listen, you, you need to get this. Do not come to the conclusion that somehow we were some super spiritual giants of any kind, right? We weren't. At least I wasn't. We were still giving a small amount to our church, not even close to tithing 10%. We were far closer to the 2.8%, which is, by the way, in America, what people who consider themselves born-again Christians average in giving. The 10% thing happened years later. After a whole bunch more sermons on money that I ignored. And when we made that decision on one income and now three little kids in tow, we had no idea how we were going to make it. And I cannot tell you in this day how the math ever worked out. But every month, God just ensured that the 90% went far further than the 100% ever did. So I need to say this. Once we experienced God involving himself, inserting himself in our finances that way, it just propelled us to never stop doing it. And I'll tell you this, there's something a bit magical 
to move from trusting in money to trusting in God and feeling him at work in the finances. Now, look, I I know there are people sitting in this room who would testify that this is exactly what their experience has been in life. So we're not unique. This is just what God does. And once we experience it, we, we never wanted not to experience it. And he's never let us down, ever. Despite, I will say this, despite some really stupid, boneheaded moves I've made with money over the years, right? And I've had to testify about those moves in the financial peace classes that I teach, okay? So, there you go. So, thank you, Internet, for this immortalizing this stupidity. Okay, so, church, and kind of beginning to wrap this up, here's all I'm saying. Why don't we do something that matters? Why don't we do something that lasts? Why don't we do something that builds the investment in being rich towards God? Why don't we make a difference that only rich people can make? Let's take what's been given to us and let's use it to be a blessing to others and start where God starts, giving to the work of the local church here at the Surge. If this is where you consider home, this is your local home. But if you go to someplace else, that's your home, right? And look, just in case you're wondering, I do not need your money. I do not want any of your money. If you dropped a million dollars, and I encourage you to do that, in the offering box on your way out of here, I am not getting a penny of it. Nor is E. We're the only people on staff. But look, what if you gave? What if you gave? What more could the church do and be in our community? Look, we do not talk about money much here. I, I hate talking about it. Some would argue we don't do it enough. But Jesus spent a huge amount of time, a huge amount of airspace, talking about our love of money and just what it does to damage you spiritually. He knew what a trap it was for us. But we also know this. A lot, a lot of you may have come from churches where it seemed like all they were interested in is getting the money from your pockets into theirs, right? Paying off the mortgage or some big pro- building program. Maybe you were some places where you saw the money misused or misappropriated or even stolen, right? So we tend to be hesitant to talk about it a lot. But since we teach from the Bible, you're going to find passages in the Bible where we have to talk about it. So let me make it clear. This was not intended to be a guilt trip, so don't take it as that. It's just Jesus saying this, okay? Better watch out. You, be, you better be on your guard. You better have your eyes open because your life does not consist just in this money and stuff that you have. So I only share my story with Jackie because I want you to take steps, maybe just one step, to begin to experience a level of intimacy with our creator in that finance part of your life. He cares about that part of your life because he knows that that's one of the draws away from him. I'm just telling you this, if you, if you do it, if you take a step, it will change your life because God does something supernatural in us and through us when we are committed to being rich toward him. And so I lay myself out there for you because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. Let me pray for us.